Welcome to the Alpha Dude Podcast with Michael Pulser. What would it be like if you knew that you were unstoppable and you could live life on your terms? Better yet, how good would it feel knowing that on your deathbed, you had fulfilled all your potential and more? Life on Earth has a beginning and an end. It's what you do in the middle that counts. Let's look at how to make that part even better. Psychological Warfare, Reverse Engineering. In this episode, we'll look at this concept and see a unique way of dealing with the way emotional abuse occurs. Simply put, what we'll do is we'll, we'll look at how it happens and then reverse engineer so that you can work with what happens to you. So it's imperative that you have heard the last episode because all of the work we did on emotions is paramount for this one. Just a quick recap. Last episode, we went over the primary emotions. If you haven't watched Pixar's Inside Out movie by now, make sure you do because it has so much valuable information just about the primary emotions, except, as I said before, the fear and the surprise are generally separated into another type of emotion. Next, you can combine them and turn them into compound emotions. So as I said before, you can get the component of fear and anticipation, mix them together, and then you get the secondary emotion of anxiety. A good way to conceptualize this is just thinking about primary colors. Primary colors, red, blue, and yellow. If you get yellow and mix it with blue, you've got green. That's your secondary color. Exactly the same concept. Let's just give you an example of how this works in the real world of emotional abuse. Now, the first basic example is when you have a one emotion step. And this could be done, say, for example, in a bully situation. If you're, take yourself back to when you're a child, there's a schoolyard bully. Often, they're just ferocious little so-and-sos, they they go and they give you a smack every now and then and that causes you to get scared of them. You feel fear about being around them and that's bad enough as it is. But as we get older, our minds become more and more sophisticated and these bullies grow up and in the, in the uh, boardrooms, they have a very sophisticated way of bullying and you could find yourself with a bully at work, for example. And they could have that fear that they give you of general negativity and repercussions of doing things wrong. But then they'll balance in a nice little dose of negativity of something that's going to happen, building up the anticipation that something bad is on its way. That is the combination that we talked about before. Anticipation plus fear. This combination is toxic because you're left with anxiety and anxiety is such a crippling emotion that is epidemic in the world. Next, another example would be a basic emotion that we'd have at home, for example. Let's say you have a child and the mum is an occasional alcoholic, maybe once or twice a year maximum, she gets really, really drunk and then beats the boy physically. Now, this 
is awful and it causes fear within the young one. The one thing is it can actually get even worse. If this mum is going to be abusive at random times or if she's going to become drunk more often and talk about the anticipation of the pain that's coming to them, then it's just going to feed into the child's anxieties and actually bring on this massive anticipation of something negative is going to happen. You get that anticipation, you mix it with the fear, and bang, you're caught with that dreadful anxiety once again. So if this sounds like it's triggering you before I go on, just make sure you get some help because this sort of stuff can go deep if it applies to you. But if you're just hearing this and you feel like there's a few nuggets of general information that may apply to you, listen on. The solution to this is realizing that all of these emotions that I've just discussed all are incredibly similar because we all know that we think about things. We have that neurological response, but we also have a hormonal endocrine chemical response. And this is the, the chemicals in our body that's released in such situations. There's a old story. It says that you have somebody, you're looking at the person. He can't keep still. He's pacing around. He's twitching. He's looking like he can't just can't relax. He's even sweating a little bit. When you look at that person, what is what do you see? What emotion is he going through? It could be panic attack could be anxiety, but he could have just won the lottery. That could be excitement that he's going through. And that's because all of these emotions, anticipation, fear, and excitement, all share very similar hormones. Not exactly the same, but enough to replicate many of our physiological responses. So I believe that the answer is in transmitting or transmuting the emotions to something else. But we have to be careful, and we also have to be intentional. I'll give you an example. If you want to turn that dreadful anxiety into something else, you have to deal with the breakdown products of anxiety, and that is fear and anticipation. So you can look at anticipation and say, well, that shares many physiological changes with with excitement, so therefore I'm going to try and change the anticipation into excitement. You can change the way that your body works, the way your mind works. You can use NLP change technologies. Whatever you need just to access that state, you do it. And then you look and say, well, what is this new combination I've got? Excitement plus fear. Do you remember when you ever had these emotions put together? Remember last time you went to the theme park? Perhaps you felt kind of excited and kind of scared and this brings up an emotion a secondary emotion called a thrill and this thrill is something that's really addictive it it's something that i can actually start an addiction and some people have a thrill associated with their addiction that they are part of and we're actually going to talk about that in the next episode so this is a double-edged sword because this is fantastic. You can come to a situation, deal with it appropriately, get a thrill from it, reinforces your 
positive change. You have metacognition. You think about thinking. You say, well, this is different. This is who I am at uh, the level of identity. And then you make real changes. And this is awesome. But you just have to be aware that excitement plus fear equals thrill. And thrill is one of the steps in addiction. So just be careful in what you're using it for. Discernment is key. Once we learn to reverse engineer or use the top-down approach to psychological warfare, we can not only understand how the system works, but develop mastery by knowing the individual parts. We can apply this to so many facets of life, and our next guest from the Waiting In podcast is here to explore the concept of religion. As part of the aptitude or skill set part of the Alphadood system, I think it's great not only to go for depth into your field of expertise and interest, but it's also to go for breadth. And in his past episodes spanning from science to science fiction, Telsa to aliens, it's well worth a listen to. So let's wade in. When you think of religion, you probably think of a church or temple, some kind of ritualized worship and belief in a deity. Well, you're not all wrong, and of course some people are believers and some people aren't. But throughout the world, much of our thought process and societal views have been intricately shaped and molded by religion over thousands of years, and we sometimes forget that. Religion really serves as sort of a voluntary glue that can hold people together, for better or for worse, without the need of some form of earthly authority that might be more easily contested. In the Roman Empire, the birthplace of our modern Western world, religion and the state were blended into the imperial cult. Emperors were inseparable from gods, and thus, defiance was treasonous. This handed emperors all kinds of power, as long as people bought in. But, at the time, it wasn't perhaps all bad. Rome would put a stop to things like human sacrifice, cannibalism, definitely an upgrade in society. But Rome didn't stamp out all the other religions, as long as they didn't make waves, and the Romans seemed to have a fair amount of what's called syncretism, where they sort of viewed the religions as more or less trying to accomplish the same things, so long as Rome and the imperial cult were in charge. And that's also not really a bad thing. I would hesitate to call ancient Rome a place of religious freedom, but you did kind of have that to a degree, so that allows a certain amount of free thought which is an improvement from, you know, one tribe just outright killing another tribe because they looked at something and had a different god. But if you live in the Western world, it's probably not so much Rome that influences you today, but Christianity. In the case of Rome and the imperial cult, Christianity was considered dangerous because Christianity denied the imperial cult. Stories like the martyrdom of St. George reflect this, where Christians like George are killed by emperors like Diocletian, because they don't view the emperor as an absolute divine authority, which was akin to treason. Christianity puts a single, omnipresent God in charge of the universe. From a psychological perspective, that's actually incredibly powerful stuff, and it goes a long ways towards getting us where we are today, because your allegiance is no longer to a person or a temple, but to an ideal. In this new religion, people were viewed more or less as equals, And second chances are a big part of it, too. One of the more widely known stories comes from the Gospel of John. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, 
the Pharisees being the Jewish religious police, brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using the question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus of breaking the law. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and started writing on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now, and leave your life of sin. So we don't know exactly what Jesus was writing in the ground, but the general thinking goes that he was probably writing the sins of people who were in the crowd, and so once people realized this, they started walking away. But there's another thing that gets kind of lost sometimes. This is a big societal development. Now suddenly we're not stoning people for things like adultery. Now, stoning people for adultery wasn't unique to Judaism either. The Roman custom at the time also allowed for a man to kill his wife if she was caught in the act. And, if the other lover happened to be a slave or a non-citizen, they could also be killed. So this story really is another societal upgrade, and one that has ramifications for the individual as well. Because now the sinner or criminal is offered the chance to continue living and to stop the negative behavior. That personal upgrade is really what Christianity is, or at least should be, all about. And even if you aren't religious, there's loads of value in these stories that really capture the spirit of personal progress so long ago before anybody was really talking about this stuff. On that note, there's another story that's probably the most interesting to me in that regard, and it's found in three of the four Gospels. It goes like this. A large crowd followed and pressed around Jesus, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she got worse. And when she heard about Jesus... She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, If I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized the power had gone from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you? His disciples answered. And yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. So he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So in each gospel that this story shows up, uh, the verbiage is actually a little bit different, but it actually makes it more amazing. So, you know, if you're interested in that sort of thing, you can go back and search for that story on your own. But when we read this sort of story today, if you're like me, you kind of tend to look at it and just think about magic, right? Oh, here's these magic robes and this magic man and this woman touched him and she got magically healed. But that's actually dead wrong on so many levels. The context of the time and the verbiage are incredibly important here. So first off, we have a Jewish woman in the first century. Now that's important, because in the first century, women were very much subservient to men. They couldn't even go out to the market and engage in commerce in most circumstances. They couldn't use the same facilities as men in a religious sense or a public sense. And women, more so than men, were likely to be illiterate as well. Men were also discouraged from speaking with women that they did not know, so they would have had a lot less interaction than women do today. 
So the next part only makes it worse. The woman suffered from a condition which had had her bleeding for some capacity for over a decade. So in Jewish culture, that alone means she would have been considered ceremoniously impure, which, on top of her already low status as a female, meant that she couldn't go out into public, and her husband, her father, and her brothers could only have limited interactions with her, or else they would also be seen as impure for a time. So this woman was probably holed up and would have been entirely dependent on others for her existence. She couldn't go to the temple to worship, uh, she couldn't go out into the market and do anything, she couldn't really even talk to other people, and on top of this, it says that she'd been mistreated by the doctors the whole time and spent all of her money on a bunch of things with no results, and she was only getting worse. So, it's also assumed that she didn't have any children, which in the first century would have made her status even lower still, because if you were a woman who didn't produce children... It just made you seem that much more like a piece of livestock that somebody didn't want, you know, that wasn't productive. So it's safe to say that this individual was at the absolute rock bottom, both mentally and culturally. And remember, these circumstances that she's in seem ridiculous to us today, and we just tend to write them off. But you have to remember this is the first century. People in general don't look at things the way you and I did, you know, do today. So this woman feels that if she can just touch Jesus, then she'll get better. So who is Jesus? So let's set aside the religious stuff for a second and just look at what Jesus represents. He's strength, power, confidence, determination, humility, morality. He's all of those things rolled into one person. So Jesus is the ideal, right? He's the ideal form. So this woman, she desperately gives it her all. She leaves what would have been her confinement, right, because she's not allowed in society, just to go reach out and touch this ideal, to touch Jesus, right? So she touches him, and she immediately feels better. But she's afraid afterwards, after she reaches out, and she's nervous. So it's terrifying. Going all in is terrifying. The next details are also important. Jesus is looking around to see who touched him. But, but wait, you know, you can't get lost there either. He's in the middle of this big bustling crowd, and he's trying to push his way through. His apostles even turn around and look at him funny and say, What do you mean? You're in this huge crowd. Everybody's bumping up against us. What do you mean? Who touched you? So the woman's afraid, but she comes forward to Jesus. And then Jesus just looks at her and said, You know, it wasn't me. It was your faith that saved you. Be free from your suffering. So what does that really tell us? In life... There's lots of people who are bumping up against one virtue or another. You know, there's lots of people that are half committed, but they're not quite all in. How many times have you yourself started something but not finished, or known someone who's done the same thing? That's what's really going on here. There's lots of people bumping into this ideal, right? Jesus, what he represents. We all know what it is, but very few people ever go all in. And when they do, it's instantly recognizable. You see, it wasn't about the person's terrible life circumstances, it's about what she was willing to do about it. So for her, it was no longer being dependent on the doctors, or her husband, or her kids, or whoever. It's about not letting her personal demons, or fears, control her, both physically and mentally. That's a huge psychological message. One that represents something that we as individuals must be willing to do to upgrade ourselves. It's your outlook, it's the motivation to improve, and the action you take on that motivation that can be your quote-unquote salvation from whatever your circumstance is. It doesn't always have to be dire circumstances either. Whenever you do something, you should do it with purpose and with passion. It can be terrifying and maybe even feel stupid in some circumstances if the thing that you're trying to do is, you know, say you're a really buff guy, but what you want to go do is ballet, right? But 
the payoff in the end will be worth it. Now, that's a message that in and of itself isn't really considered a secret today, but we really dismiss how old of an idea it is and where it really came from and how it caught on. So much of the time we tend to look at an issue like this and say, oh yeah, I know murder is wrong, or oh yeah, I know this is bad, or that you shouldn't lie to people, or you shouldn't do this. And that's all fine today, but you're taking for granted the fact that the world wasn't always like that. Even in this story, the custom at the time, the law at the time, was that because this woman was in a bad way, she should just sit at home and be dependent on everybody else. It wasn't necessarily a world of, you know, hey, toughen up or try to have a better outlook. It was a world of, well, you're not clean, you better just stay locked in a cage. I mean, you can look at other religions in other places too, like uh, there was a place where they recently found like some ritual human sacrifice of like some 400 kids got performed at one time. So you might be tempted to stop and say, oh, well, wait a second, that was religion that did that. Well, yeah, I mean, that's my whole point. Some things are objectively better than others, right? So if your religion and your state are intertwined and it leads you to kill babies, well, I think that's a worse thing than a religion that does another thing, right? So the religion is really indicative of the thought of the society or how the society actually does something. That's something that I think kind of modern secular thought really skews and gets really, really wrong so much of the time. But anyway, to get back to the story of the bleeding woman... There's a lot of people who only get so far as bumping into the ideal, but they never really achieve the sort of personal upgrade the woman in the story experienced. In the ancient world, this sort of empowering of the individual displayed in stories like this, particularly in the Bible, meant you didn't need to wait around for the gods or the authorities to act. The power to effect change was in you, and your model was the ideal man. So, often we tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to religion, especially today, and we take for granted what it really meant at one time, and how it got us to where we are today. So, in our own time, I think we need to be more conscious about how our world of today got the way that it is, and what are the things that really enabled us to be the individuals that we are, increasingly independent from the wrath of gods and kings. What do we do with the knowledge that we have, and what are we passing on to the future? We should all be trying to be like the woman in this story, who put her problems behind her and went all in reaching for the ideal. So my name is Wade, and if you like this kind of historical look at context and maybe is there something that we missed in some of these old stories, you might check out my podcast. It's called Waiting In. Uh, you can find it pretty much anywhere you want to listen. I don't generally stick to religion. I've got anything in there from, you know, aliens and radio astronomy to, you know, stuff that's more like this that's religious. It could really go anywhere. So... Anywho, if you liked it, again, check out my show. It's called Waiting In. So with that, I'd like to say thanks to Michael and the Personal Upgrade Podcast for having me on. I hope you guys found what I had to say interesting. I'll see you next time. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. If so, rate it from the place you downloaded it. For any questions, send an email to michaelpulser at gmail.com. If you liked the podcast so far, you will love Michael Pulser's new book coming out soon, Alpha Dude Personal Upgrade. In this text, we look deeper at the Alpha Dude system with many not-seen-before tools and techniques which will upgrade you so you can fulfill your potential. Stay tuned for details.